So then if you spot me coming around that corner, you're just gonna walk out on this woman? Not say goodbye? That's the discipline. That's pretty vacant, you know? Yeah, it is what it is. It's that or we both better go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. I don't much want to either. Neither do I. Welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are talking about two influences on The Dark Knight. Uh, so we've got Michael Mann's Heat and we have the comic book, The Long Halloween. Ooh, temperature's rising. Feel the heat. You feel it. You gotta, gotta leave. Don't ever uh, get involved with anything that you can't leave in 30 seconds flat. If we're if we feel it during the podcast, we're just gonna cut it out right here. Mm-hmm. That includes this yeah. podcast, so you know exactly. <laughs> I live on a busy street, so there might be sirens here coming up in a couple minutes. So you know, it's free late. free sound effects. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to those things, uh, any Christopher Nolan items in the news that we've seen? Yeah, I have uh, one. We actually got some interview quotes, not from Christopher Nolan, but from another filmmaker. We got something from Steven Spielberg, and he was interviewed after the Oscar nominations were last week, or I think at this point, two weeks ago. And his uh, The Fablemans is nominated for a bunch of awards, including Best Picture. And so he was uh, being interviewed by Deadline about his career and about uh, what he thinks about blockbusters being nominated and everything and talking about this year's slate of Best Picture nominees. And um, he said that he was really happy that Top Gun Maverick and Avatar were nominated for Best Picture this year. And then he was talking about just blockbusters in general being nominated and said that he was really encouraged by the fact that the Academy expanded the number of movies that can be nominated for Best Picture from 5 to 10. That happened back in 2009. Um, And he said, I'm really encouraged by that. It came too late for the film that should have been nominated a number of years ago, which was Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Yep. They said, that movie would have definitely garnered a Best Picture nomination today, so having these two blockbusters solidly presented on the top 10 list is something we should all be celebrating. Um, and he famously had many, many blockbusters nominated and lost. Uh, he had Jaws nominated for Best Picture, which lost. We talked about Raiders losing to Chariots of Fire. And then he had some other ones. I think you finally got it for Schindler's List. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. But then there's, what, there were some was, other Was Schindler's List a blockbuster, though? I, yeah, I know. He, yeah. The, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. The price he, of getting Schindler's List made was Jurassic Park, which yeah, not yeah. a problem, but... Schindler's List was definitely something that the Academy would have considered anyway. Yeah, he also had uh, Close Encounters and E.T. also were nominated, which also lost. So, you know, he had all (laughs) he did all the quote unquote whimsical Steven Spielberg stuff just to (laughs) boost other big bigger stuff. But uh, um, so he's excited about that. Uh, And then there isn't really any other new news on the Christopher Nolan front. And I don't really like to traffic and rumors that much but this comes from a semi uh, reputable source a uh, film site called world of real and they're quoting some emails from some french readers 
that is telling them that Oppenheimer may be premiering at the Cannes Film Festival in May, two months before it's released stateside. So we might be getting some reviews uh, and some reactions about that movie uh, sooner than we thought. So that might be cool. I don't know if they would be doing the full IMAX blow up, go all out thing for it, but right. uh, we might get some information on what the content of the movie is like. But again, that is, uh, I haven't really seen anything else pop up on that front. So we'll keep posted on whatever's happening later on that front, but that could be pretty cool here in a few short months. Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about that. In one mind, I'm excited that we can hear some buzz on the other. I don't want to hear the buzz. I don't want to know. I want to, <laughs> I want to wait. Yeah. You know, just the, the yeah. yin and yang of it. Yeah. It's because like I have the Google alert set up for it, but then at some point I'm like, should I just turn it off? I don't really want to know. Even though it's an <laughs> event that happened, you know, long before I was even a thought. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the item that I bring to the table this week was just uh, something that the algorithm on Instagram threw at me. And it was a reel from an account at cinematologist underscore. And they had a reel splits the screen of a tiny little bit from the dark night of the Joker at the Harvey Dent fundraiser. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on the bottom is just the scene as it is in the movie, the Joker. And the top of it is a deep fake with Heath Ledger's quote unquote normal face with no makeup on or anything. And it plays them at the same time. And it's really, really fascinating, really interesting because I know the, the ethics and our feelings about putting AI on things and deep fakes and recreating performances with computers is a bit, yeah, we had, there's a lot of discourse to be had about that. But mm-hmm. I, the most interesting part to me was that I always quite regularly when I'm watching The Dark Knight, I try to see Heath Ledger's face underneath that makeup and it's just impossible. Like it's it's hard for me to envision. Yeah, he, and that he allowed me to do that. So yeah. Even the part in The Dark Knight where he has no makeup on when he's one of the fake honor guard members trying to assassinate the mayor. There's that quick shot. Yeah. It's still like, wait, that's not that's something's wrong here. That's not not my Heath Ledger. Um, so just, to, just the glimpse that that offered of finally giving me a, a actual visual picture of what that might look like, I appreciated, but it is really, really strange. Yeah. It creeped me out when I watched it, when you shared it with me. But then on the other hand, I also was just like, where did they get footage of him? Like it, it looked real. Like my first thought was like, wow, where'd they get this test footage of him without the makeup on? And why would they even film that in the first place? Cause he would... <laughs> Like it's a well filmy, and then you know it took my brain a minute to like, no, this is a deep fake. This is uh, <laughs> someone fed fed an AI machine with all of this. Yeah. Uh, well, that is yeah. I don't like any of that. That creeps me out. But yeah, it was still interesting to see that. And then I don't know, just because like I mean, it's it's especially murky with like you know, he's dead. His family probably did not consent to someone doing that. I don't know, but. Right, right. Weird. But in the meantime, as we set that aside for the moment, moving on to our next usual topic, what are some other things that are not deepfakes that you're reading (laughs) or watching or or consuming outside of our usual diet of Nolan? 
some very very real pop culture things um <laughs> do you play have you ever played last of us no i no not much for video games for me. okay yeah so you may like this one if you ever have time to do it and it's really violent and dark so you might have to carve out even more free time to do it than usual <laughs> so that your kids don't walk in on you shooting an infected zombie person in the head in a game or something <laughs> but uh they may i was very skeptical when i heard that they were going to make the last of us into a, a tv show on hbo just because i was the game is very cinematic on its own uh there are some really cool gameplay elements of it but a lot of the selling point for it for me and for other people is the story that's told either through cutscenes or through your character interactions so part of it is like if i wanted to experience the story i would just play the game but what hbo has done is they've turned it into like a really really they've changed just enough uh to justify the adaptation i think uh, while also keeping in some of the stuff that made the game a lot of fun mm-hmm. um and I'm not all caught up on this week's episode yet, but I just I've seen the first three episodes so far, and it's just some of it's some of those beautiful TV I've seen in a really long time. So highly recommend that. I had high standards for it, and it's surpassed that every time I watch every week. Right, right. Yeah, I've heard the um, buzz, and I'm I'm very interested. Yeah, it's good. Pedro Pascal is fantastic yeah. as a lead role. And then uh, I know we both like Ryan Johnson, uh, both a big fan of Knives Out and Last Jedi. Uh, He has a new TV show out on Peacock called Poker Face, which is uh, like a Columbo murder she wrote riff starring Natasha Lyonne in the lead character spot. So it's different from like some other stuff. Like it's not a whodunit. It's you see the murder happen in the first reel of the episode. And then the whole rest of the the episode is figuring out how Charlie, that's Natasha Leon's character, is going to catch that person and figure out how they did it and get them to be put away. Um, and it's really fascinating, and it, especially watching it on the heels of our Prestige episode while we were talking about that and Glass Onion, because he wrote this show while he was also working on Glass Onion, so you can kind of see a lot of the same wheels spinning in terms of misdirection and clues and stuff and it's just it's really fun to watch and then the last thing that i will talk about is i just started listening to this today actually in prep for this episode there is an episode out there called one heat minute by a guy named blake howard uh, in australia and he has gone through every he, he has gone through all 170 minutes of heat and has dedicated an episode per minute to this movie and yeah. it's a big, big old Michael Mann fest and it's wonderful. And he's got it, the <laughs> podcast has since grown to do other stuff. He started to look at like Miami Vice and some other Michael Mann projects and uh, other crime noir book uh, things and some other stuff. But uh, the first couple episodes actually had some stuff that's pertinent to what we're going to talk about tonight. But once I started listening to that, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to listen to all 170 episodes of this now because this is really good. Yeah. Yeah. I made that. I don't know if you call it a mistake, but I did that in the early stages of the pandemic with uh, there's a podcast called the Apollo 13 Minute that does the same oh, thing. It nice. goes through each minute of Apollo 13. I got 27 episodes in it was good and i enjoyed listening to the guy who's talking but it was also yeah i was like how are they so many episodes yeah because the first episode that i listened to today was you know the first 60 seconds of heat is just black screen and the credits and stuff right they found stuff to talk about for 15 minutes but 
mostly it's I'm interested in a, in a feed of like editing and producing and podcasting just to see how they're going to pull it off. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually on the Apollo 13 minute, they did the same thing on the first couple minutes of the movie. They would see like, oh, this actor's name popped up on the credits. Let's talk about them. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one minute at a time for all these great 1995 films. <laughs> But that is, uh, that's it. That's all that I've been watching and consuming this week. Yeah, and I've been doing a whole lot of things, but I won't waste time by going through the entire list. I'll just mention the most uh, impactful thing for me was watching Everything Everywhere all at once about a week ago, and it blew me away. You I'm were so excited you watched it. <laughs> yeah, you were dead on about how great it was, and... I remember what you said about you laughing at certain points. Other people weren't and finding different reactions and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I could, I could tell that the things I was laughing at, you know, Haley maybe wasn't or having a reaction to it. So I felt that very much. And then just as it moved further and further on toward its conclusion, it just had me in its grip and I was feeling all the emotions and I just want Everybody was great in that. That it's just a absolute stunning piece of cinema, and you know I love it so much already, and I can't wait to watch it again. But especially, especially, I want Kiwi Kwan to win that Oscar. Damn it! You know, I've you know, I talked about how words don't really matter on this, but just just that guy and <laughs> the whole arc this of his whole own story, personal story, yeah, yeah is just amazing and then of course waymond in the film as a character is for oh, me the glue that man. tied everything together yeah. and gave me I my think favorite about line. that monologue yeah. he has at the end maybe like once a day probably like mm -hmm. the laundry and taxes and yeah kindness as a, exactly. as a weapon like oh my god yes it's so so good yeah i think i'm gonna have to watch that again before the oscars uh i think alamo's doing a like they're putting it back in theaters for a limited time so i might try and catch that but if not i'll just catch it on streaming somewhere but it's, i really oh, need to figure out a way so to do that good. myself too yeah. yeah but everybody deserves a waymond yes waymond forever but again everyone else is also great at michelle yo and stephanie sue and ah man <laughs> i was so Curtis, that, yeah. yeah stephanie Sue got the uh, the nomination yeah, yeah. Never looking at bagels the same way again. <laughs> or but. googly eyes or pet rocks. Or do you see A24 selling pet rocks now as part of like a merch thing for <laughs> oh them? Gosh. It, it's like super expensive pet rock, but <laughs> yeah. Before I watched everything everywhere all at once, my general feeling toward rocks was basically Elmo. And now, <laughs> now I don't know how to feel anymore. I don't maybe I don't Hello, know. Rocco. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a rock. <laughs> But Jake, what is this podcast? This is not a Oscars or everything, everywhere, all at once podcast. This is a Christopher Nolan podcast. And tonight, like we said, we are going to be talking about the long Halloween and heat. And we chose these. Obviously, we chose heat. We've talked about that before. Um, it's mentioned a lot in the Nolan variations. And he has even referenced it in talking about how he wanted to adapt insomnia when... Uh, he was trying to figure out how to crack that. He said, oh, you can make it into a Hollywood movie with big movie stars and make it like Heat. Um, and then he took that one step further and actually cast Al Pacino in his movie. 
<laughs> and there are a lot of big influences of uh, from that movie on The Dark Knight, which we will get into uh, here in a little bit. And then for Long Halloween, uh, that one's not actually mentioned in the Nolan variations. I checked the it, index. I made, yeah. made double sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I did the same thing tonight too. I was like, it's not here. Uh, but <laughs> it's one of the two primary sources of adaptation for The Dark Knight. And then from the foreword of the book also mentions year one, which we have on a previous podcast that you guys should go check out if you haven't listened to that one already. And it also mentions Dark Knight Returns, which we're going to read, uh, spoiler alert, uh, for Dark Knight Rises uh, here in a couple more episodes. So we've got a nice little trilogy of stuff lining up. And I liked that Long Halloween also built off of some of the stuff that was laid down in year one. So it, we, they the Dark Knight all... Returns. Actually, Return, oh, excuse me. Yeah, maybe Dark Knight Returns. No, no I, I can't remember. Are we doing Dark Knight Returns? Uh, We're doing A Tale of Two Cities only. <laughs> guess, we, guess we'll need to double check Scratch ourselves. That. On we'll that. find that. We'll find that out. We we might cut that, but we will find that. Just out Just more encouragement for people to read the <laughs> check the materials list that we post with every yes. episode. <laughs> Because I have a copy of that one, and I would be more than happy to read that one. Uh, but no. Uh, as always, a uh, blanket spoiler alert reminder, if you have not seen Heat yet, or if you have not read Long Halloween yet, go do that right now and then come right back and listen to this because we're going to be talking about anything and everything in those pieces of media. Um, but first up, we've got Batman The Long Halloween. And would you like to take the summary for this one? Yeah, I'll introduce this one. It was released, the arc was released in 1997, or was it over 1997 and into 1998? I think it was 96 to 97. Well, the arc finished in 1997, a 13-episode arc of Batman written by Jeff Loeb, illustrated by Tim Sale. Colorist was Gregory Wright, and the letterer was Richard Starkings. And the bookshop.org synopsis tells us, Taking place during Batman's early days of crime fighting, this new edition of the classic mystery tells the story of a mysterious killer who murders his prey only on holidays. Working with District Attorney Harvey Dent and Lieutenant James Gordon, Batman races against the clock as he tries to discover who Holiday is before he claims his next victim each month. A mystery that has the reader continually guessing the identity of the killer, this story also ties into the events that transform Harvey Dent into Batman's deadly enemy. Two Face. So that's a. I think that's a pretty, pretty good summary for everything. I don't know if we need to go through yeah. too much more. Yeah. <laughs> than yeah. That. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, yeah. There's a lot, a lot going on, but it all synthesizes pretty well for everything. And I like yeah. that since it's it's a collection of different episodes. Like I noticed towards the end, the it would reintroduce certain characters and like get you up to speed on their relationships to each other and say certain things over and over so that you really got it in case you were coming in an issue late or if you were doing something else. So it was right. Yeah. Not mistaking the repetitiveness for, for laziness. It was yeah by virtue of the, the release cycle for sure. Mm-hmm. Keep you up to date. Right. More yeah. of a previously on type equivalent. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But how did you read this Jake? And have you read this before? Um, I had never read this one before and I had a, a paperback copy of the collection that I picked up from Half Price Books, and so I had I've had that laying around the house for a couple of years now. I just never got around to it, and now I finally had a good excuse to read it. So yeah, 
Yeah, I actually wasn't able to finagle a physical copy from my local library, so luckily I had the digital version available to me through the library, so I did that, and I was able to... Well, I opted not to read it on my Kindle just because it's black and white, so... Because you don't the hate yourself, app. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, <laughs> so I used the Kindle app uh, on my Surface, so I was able to kind of use it as a tablet for once, so yeah. Got some really nice, vivid, detailed color out of that. So it was really a nice, visually pleasing way to read that. Yes. But now we've gotten a good idea of what the plot is. What did you think about it, Jake? What did uh, what were some of your thoughts? I really liked it. Um, we can get into the the necessity or the kind of out of the blue nature of the twist in the last uh, two pages. Yeah, we'll uh, talk here about in a little that. bit. But uh, I really liked the. Because in the foreword, they talk about how the germ of the idea for this came from just like one dinner that they had with their editor. Yeah. Uh, who said that he really liked the writer and illustrator's work on a gangster story of Batman previously. And so that kind of got the juices flowing on what they could possibly do with this. And they knew they wanted to tie in some stuff from year one uh, and kind of play in that sandbox a little bit and then create like a noir gangster Batman story. And I really liked that it pulled in a lot of stuff from crime movies. Like it, it opens up with a mobster saying, I believe in Gotham city, which is a very, very much a direct riff from Godfather. It's actually uh, Bruce, Bruce Wayne saying that. Or is it Bruce? Well, yeah, it's Bruce yeah. Wayne. Yeah. 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 Meeting with, uh, the meeting mo- with the, the mobster. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was the other one? There's a character in the, in the book. Uh, named Willie two times, which is a nice little tip of the hat to Goodfellas. And, and all the Irish mobsters have such yeah, classic, yeah, <laughs> Cla- classic uh, yeah. Irish mobster names. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And then I don't know if they did this, uh, if this was intentional towards the end with uh, the tomatoes, uh, not Falcone, the other family, uh, Maroni, uh, Maroni. Uh, yeah, the the tomatoes with him, uh, with that family, uh, right before a violent moment, reminded me of the oranges be asso- being associated with death and violence in The Godfather. So I liked all the oh, yeah. the little tips of the hats to other crime uh, noir stuff weaved into that very DC, very Gotham Batman story. But I liked this as a way to weave in so many different Batman villains under one roof basically because yeah, every issue is impressive yeah every issue features one more villain who could be the serial killer and you get to showcase everyone from the joker to scarecrow poison ivy uh the riddler a whole bunch of other different people uh up to and including two-face towards the end yeah but yeah, I liked it a lot. I liked the, uh, loved the coloring, loved the shadows and the yes, shades. Yes, the shadows, absolutely. And yeah. Especially the fact that you see Harvey Dent. I don't think there's any panel where he's not at least halfway in a shadow, which is amazing. Yeah, I picked up on that very quickly. Way. I mean, they did it with a few other people here and there, but obviously it was very obvious what they were yeah. building to. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I think at that point, like, you know who he is, what he becomes, like, you yeah, there's no yeah. way that it's not going to. You might as well just it, lean into it. Wasn't it wasn't a secret. No, yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's not, that's not a knock on it that we knew yeah. what was coming, but still um, that they that they did it. <laughs> yeah, but there's I love just the mix of just like stark black and white coloring with you know an occasional pop 
of color. There are some panels where people are stepping out of shadows where only one part of the whole panel is illuminated. I thought that was pretty cool. Like they were doing a lot of really interesting minimalist stuff with, um, with color and shadow and light that I really liked. And I also really liked the, um, I liked the voiceover near the version of voiceover narration a lot here with Batman and his, um, they kept reiterating it, you know, the serial nature of it, but the, I made a promise to my parents that I would rid the city of the evil that took their lives, just hammering home that theme over and over and over. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting, but, um, on the whole, yeah, I think I really liked the whole collection. I thought it worked really well as a group, but then also you could take each one out as its own piece and enjoy it separately. If you were trying to just read the issues week to week. Yeah. I enjoyed it too, and I think the collection was worked really well, uh, in spite of the last little <laughs> twisty twist at the end. Which again, we'll we'll get to in a little bit. But especially what you mentioned about the artistic style—that is something I picked up on very quickly. Uh, especially in comparison with year one, I think I I wrote a note that said it feels it feels different from. I don't have too much experience reading too many comic books or graphic novels, but it felt different from other styles that I've seen before. And just talking about it in comparison to year one, this felt, it felt more minimal, maybe like expressionistic. There's yeah, more shapes and just colors. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of panels where say they're standing on the roof of the police building with the bat signal. And all this is just a square for the building they're standing on. There's nothing in the background. It's just a color panel in the background and you like Mm -hmm. see a silhouette. Um, So I really, enjoyed that you know not to say that there was that tim sale can't do any details there's plenty of panels with amazing details but the general styles kind of just pulled back and getting you that feeling and yeah incorporating those shadows and playing with the light so yeah i thought that was fantastic um another thing overall yeah just really enjoyed the getting to know the story and, and the content and seeing kind of picking out the the bits that ended up in the dark night and it's quite a lot really but most especially how they pulled harvey dent's arc of course the foreshadowing with lighting his face um dent as a character kind of is a he's kind of a dick really yeah, he's just yeah he's a really just going hard all the time he feels so isolated really it's just a him against the world really um, he starts he, it off taking down license plates and trying to write parking tickets for people. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to like find everybody who, who is at the Carmine Falcone's wedding for his nephew. And he's mm-hmm. just trying to do some, some research there. And Bruce Wayne comes out and he's just very standoffish with him. And then throughout the rest of the, the whole book, he's after uh, the first holiday murder, his first comment, Dent's first comment is like, oh, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And just, I wrote, uh, he's on the bleeding edge of his white knight status. And yes. an, even, uh, an even more intense version of how it's portrayed in the film with Dent, uh, Aaron Eckhart's Dent veering toward things before he becomes Two-Face. Right. Yeah. 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 But how they kind of just kept for, uh, foreshadowing that and building toward it. Apart from trying everything possible to make the reader think Harvey Dent's actually holiday. But at one point he gets the coin from his dad 
and there's a panel where he's waiting for Batman uh, by the bat signal. And he's just flipping the coin while he's waiting. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's just, man, it's, that was so good. Yeah. And then the other two big themes or arcs that I really liked is it raised the question of if Batman's presence in Gotham City is making everybody crazier. Batman early on is yeah. walking into Arkham Asylum with Gordon to visit <laughs> Julian Day, the calendar I man. That. I love that name so much. <laughs> in, in a very, yeah, in a very Manhunter-esque yeah. uh, scene that was repeated a few more times throughout the book. Um, Gordon says to Batman, so many are here, nearly double from when you first appeared. Do you give it any <laughs> thought? And kind of a, a direct corollary or a little bit echoed in the line of the Joker saying in the the film they'll be doubling up the rate the city's inhabitants are losing their minds and so it, it does raise a good question because it's even touched on at the end of batman begins you know escalation you know we start using semi-automatics they buy automatics you know we've got yep. you and yep. then there's this guy wearing makeup leaving joker cards at the crime scenes and so ask the question are more insane criminals and ne'er-do-wells coming to gotham and you gotta say yes the comic clearly makes that case the mob is pressed so hard by Batman and even Bruce Wayne uh, as his role as like the director of Gotham Bank is trying to block Carmine Falcone from accessing the bank funds. And so the mob turns to the supervillains or the freaks. They're breaking their own rules. Mm -hmm. um, and then near the end, the holiday killer says, you know, Gotham doesn't want your kind anymore talking to Carmine Falcone, which is the Joker in the film saying this city deserves a better class of criminal. So yeah, they're, they're upending society, even if it's like a corrupt society. And it poses that question of would it have been like this if Batman and Gordon and Denton hadn't formed this triumvirate. Yeah. And just the, the very nature of the, um, you know, what happens when we put all our faith in one person to save us? What, what then, which Dark Knight gets into a whole lot more, but the seeds of that are there too, I think here in this as well. But yeah, yeah. I also liked that you could uh, very clearly see where Dark Knight pulls a lot of its plot points from here, like the, uh, or, and like inverts it in some ways, like the scene in the movie where the Joker just burns the pile of cash that's here, but yes. he doesn't do that. Batman and Harvey didn't do that. It's a good old um, arson. Yes. Yeah. That was I, that was one of my favorite connections. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Love that. And then the I don't know if you've seen the latest Batman with Robert Pattinson, but the <laughs> Not yet. Uh, the plot point where Thomas Wayne operates on Falcone's son is a, a big plot point into that movie. Ooh, very nice. Um, okay. And one that I hadn't really seen in any other movie so far. I don't think they've done that for any any live action one yet right for that one. So that was one of, that's one of my favorite scenes from the comic that we read right. so yeah and when it when the batman does that uh, in the latest movie it's the question of very much hits on the same themes here like what if he never operated on him would i even be needed what and you know alfred is like no matter who would have come through the door your father would have operated on him just because that's who he is and you still are your father's son and I thought that panel was really touching where Alfred even also starts to question, you know, maybe if I was a better father figure to you, then maybe something else would have gone right. I don't know. But 
a little bit of a humanity amidst all the violence in every issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another connection that I like that, that twice in this, they have someone, well, not, not necessarily fake their death, but early on dense houses, uh, bombed yeah. and for a second, it lets you think that dense dead, it kind of a death fake out while they're trying to interrogate some suspects. And then it turns out dense actually undercover trying to get some information out of people. And then later when they catch the holiday killer, Batman is dressed up as a, as a SWAT team yeah. member, uh, mm-hmm. with Gordon, but masked up the whole time. So we don't know it's him and it turns out it was Batman the whole time. And so just like Gordon does in the film to help catch the Joker in the middle of it. So as a really nice, I like how they pulled that out and couple other things what uh the mob actually did have people in dense office in this one as compared to the film where yeah <laughs> gordon is like Maroni clearly has people in your office that nope not in the movie but here they do and how dent got attacked with the acid in the courtroom and how they tipped that their hat to that in the movie by having yeah. that guy on the stand pull out the, the gun and have it jam trying to shoot dent so some good you know they're very clearly knew what they were doing and and had all their their grounding for for the movie to turn that in so i really you know, appreciate all those things we can keep going on about that but uh <laughs> there's so much more to talk about including the other maybe big question that this series posed was actually from catwoman she's in here too um yeah. she directly asks Batman when they're both in their in their disguises or is it when she's do they know it doesn't seem like they do know who each other are because there's there were some panels where I felt like one of them might know who the other one is but the other person didn't know that they knew but it's all very ambiguous uh, yeah yeah but anyway it's a whichever mode they're in Catwoman or Selena asks Batman or Bruce, you know, why stay in Gotham? Like, what would it take to get you out of here? And I think that's such a big question because in The Dark Knight, one of Bruce's big motivations is to get Gotham to a point where he's not needed. He's trying to hand things over to Harvey. Right. And, you know, uh, Nolan, Chris Nolan said in the book that over the course of the trilogy, there's the sense of what being Batman is costing Bruce Wayne. And, think you really feel that maybe most heavily in the dark Knight, but also you see what it's costing dent too in this comic because in the comic here dent is married uh and has a wife gilda yeah and in a way it ties it to that ending twist which again we, we are going to get to <laughs> um it's a, a doozy maybe, not not necessarily good but i guess it's a reason um it's yeah how much is enough for batman like what would it take for him to hang it all up when will he and Gordon and Dent be able to stop? And it kind of harks back to the prestige of it, which is, you know, when's enough, like with this escalating feud, but in this case, yeah. it's uh, the law versus versus crime. So there's a really, really fantastic Frank Miller quote that I found in the afterward of Batman year one. I'm going to save it for the next episode, but I was, that touches on this but i will say that if there's any doubt about like the nolans and 
David Escoyer having the absolute firm grip on things for The Dark Knight or just Batman, their Batman adaptations in general. That quote from Frank Miller tells you that they absolutely get it. So I'll leave everyone in suspense here. (laughs) But I think it did a great job of tying into the question that the comic raised. And also at the end, after everything has been resolved, Gordon asked Batman before they they part for the final time of the book, you know, like, was it worth it? Batman asks Gordon, was it worth it? And Gordon tells him, yes, the good guys won Batman, but I won't know if it was worth it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And that gets extrapolated so well in the film when Batman makes that decision to say, no, I killed those people that can't be tied to this. We have to, we can't let the Joker win. So the comic sets the table and the the film you know serves it up randomly, just smacks it out of the park. So again, yeah, this is a really great, great basis for the Dark Knight. And I'm really glad we got to read it. So I guess we should talk about the last thing. Unless you have yeah. any thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah. No, no. I was yeah. Very happy we got to read it. Uh and if you haven't read it, go do so. It'll enhance your appreciation for Dark Knight, I think. Yes, very much so. But the the ending, the very final little twist, do you do you want to describe it, Jake? Don't know if I can do it. I don't know if you can keep combat. <laughs> <laughs> so uh here, let me I got the book here. Let me just pull pull this up to make sure I'm pulling from the correct thing here. So it's all all resolved. Um the whole story takes place over from Halloween to Halloween. And uh, George, Jim Gordon says to Batman, I believe in Gotham City. Uh, it's great. And then they've gotten, um, they've got Harvey Dent. He's locked up. They also had someone confess to the holiday murders. And so they've got, where is his name? Alberto. Yeah. Alberto Falcone. They got Alberto Falcone saying that he he did it and he was the he did it all. Um, he did it all, and his motivation was that uh, old Papa Falcone uh, never remembered his birthday, which is Valentine's Day, and uh, he said that he just wanted to help lead the crime empire, and Falcone wouldn't let him do that, and so he. Uh, he wanted to be bigger than everyone. wanted to bigger wanted to be bigger than all of you put together. Uh, and then he confesses that he says, "I am Holiday." And so we think a that's full that. page, a full page panel with him yeah. close up saying, "I am Holiday." Well, yeah. Let's be clear here. Yes, right up front. And so, but then you know, there's some pages left here. Like that surely can't be it, unless they're just trying to get everything settled down. And so then they got you know Jim Gordon goes home to his wife and kid. But when they arrest Dent or Two-Face, Two-Face says, actually, there's two holiday killers. And yeah, yeah, Gordon and Batman seem to think, well, it's Halloween. Halloween. And Two-Face just killed Carmine Falcone and Vernon Fields, the guy who was in Dent's office, who slipped uh, Sal Maroney the acid to to stay your bed. So he's just saying, well, I guess that's what he means by two holiday killers since he did it on Halloween. Mm -hmm. And then, then, yeah. Then you see uh, Dent in Arkham Asylum, 
and the full page panel uh, and he's saying his wife's name Gilda and then it cuts to Gilda in their house and she is packing up some boxes going down to the basement and she says I did what needed to be done do you remember you promised we would finally have time together when you didn't have so much work to do and then she's starting to set fire to all the evidence and it turns out that she was the one that took her husband's uniform and coat and hat for a disguise and left those at all the killings to leave a trail that would lead back to Dent. And then in a panel that is only viewed by us, she's speaking in her house as it's burning. Uh, she says, Johnny Vitti was the first. Then again, on Thanksgiving, I left the hospital when you slept. And then again, on Christmas. And then she realizes that the two killers are actually her and her husband because she says but when alberto falcone was shot on new year's and you came home late that night your hair was wet even though you were wearing a hat and so she realizes that they had the same idea and they were doing the same crime together and he didn't know and she said no one will ever find out because they don't have you to help and you can do no wrong i believe in harvey dent and <laughs> Blah, I, mean. I don't I don't know if that was necessary. I don't yeah. know if that adds to the it goes back to the like does the twist enhance any everything that came before it right thing that we and, talk about a lot and there's not really any hints that can lead you to that conclusion if you were just reading it right before we move on just a second there's a few quotes I pulled from the Nolan variations because there was a lot mm -hmm. of talk about ambiguity and twists in the book and that mm -hmm. has shaped a lot of how I think about these things now because there's so much good discussion of it. So before we fully go into that, there's a few quotes that I want to read that were in there. So Tom Schoen was writing, talking about ambiguity and he quoted, uh, I've mentioned this one before, William Empson, who wrote a book called Seven Types of Ambiguity in 1930. So Empson says, an ambiguity is not satisfying in itself nor is it considered as a device on its own, a thing to be attempted. It must in each case arise from and be justified by the peculiar requirements of the situation. And then Christopher Nolan at another point in the book is talking about, uh, I believe how he was talking about Memento after it debuted. And he kind of just told the press his interpretation and everyone ran with it. And then no one cared about making their own interpretation anymore. He's, in that context so he said you have to have a version of events it just doesn't need to be public i don't believe you can create an effective productive ambiguity without knowing what you think yourself what your own belief is otherwise i think it's a contrivance people feel the difference and then finally another relevant part of when nolan was quoting Dodie dorn as telling him the twist makes what you've seen before better he also says, because most of the time, the twist invalidates what you've seen. It's not just that it's a twist. It's what it does for the story you've seen. So for it to bring fascination, joy, and entertainment to an audience, there's got to be more to it. It's got to be something about it that enhances everything that's come before. So so you've already started going with this, and I think we're in agreement here. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> this like it's just literally the last two or three pages. This is just thrust upon us. And it's a twist insofar as, I mean, it, the book heavily, heavily, heavily the whole time was trying to lead you to think 
at, or at least the characters think it was Harvey Dent. And that's a source of yeah. guilt for Batman thinking, oh, I thought it was my friend Harvey who was doing these things. And then maybe I failed him because then he got attacked. And now he's Two-Face. Hmm. But by the time Alberto Falcone is revealed as the holiday killer, supposedly, you know, it's very, it seems to be making it very clear that that's Alberto, even though he had his own death fake out. He was the victim on New Year's Eve. Yeah. And for most of the book, we're led to believe he's dead. So I was still coming to grips with that and thinking, wait a minute, there's this death fake out. I don't, does this even work? I was kind of feeling like, eh, I don't know. It just, yeah. I was already having some conflicting feelings, but then compared compared to that, having Gilda just confess all by her lonesome just made me think, um... Yeah, after that initial shock, I was like, this is not a particularly satisfying twist. It's very confusing. It muddies the waters unnecessarily. I mean, you can make it make sense, but it just oh. wasn't. He didn't need to do it. It felt like it was just done to do it and to just have, ooh, this big shocking ending. Yeah, I don't know if that was like a, an editor's note tacked on to the end of it that they had to do. I doubt it. But it's also just weird in that most of the the twists from Nolan's movies and some of the twists in the comic books that we read for this are either dialogue to other people or where it's, it's stuff where two characters are finding out something, you know, like it's, it's not just for the benefit of the audience like this one is. And so I feel like right. if it had been to someone else and someone else figured it out, then that would be relevant. But just having her basically do a voiceover as she burns the house down, is superfluous to it i guess but it's like (laughs) yeah yeah like asking the question of did it arise from and was it justified by the requirements of the story i don't think so it tried to justify it because earlier batman shows up at harvey's house to talk to gilda and says hey we're in harvey's you know here's on his workbench there's this vice that clearly the there's some gunmetal filings on there where the serial numbers couldn't filed off of these guns. But that's like really the only tie to it. And otherwise it's, you know, it does portray Gilda and Harvey's relationship about like talking about wanting to have kids and the strain that Harvey's work is putting on their marriage. But otherwise Gilda's just mainly always portrayed at home being sad that Harvey's not there. Really. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. It's really just kind of circumstantial things. So I'm not saying for a twist like this that we have to be handed everything, but it certainly didn't feel consistent or justified. I think Nolan's saying the people feel the difference. I absolutely felt this. It just didn't. Yeah, yeah, it didn't feel right. And it's the first kind of like twist ending that I've experienced and I've been able to evaluate like this since I read the Nolan variations that didn't leave me particularly satisfied or being able to see, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I can see that. And I think it ties into what you mentioned when we mentioned Brian Johnson talking about Glass Onion, you know, trying to play fair with the audience. We right, didn't really right, have right, anything right. to go on. It wasn't really playing fair. It leaned hard into trying to tell us it was Harvey, but then it says, no, it wasn't him. And it seems like that's settled. And then it turns around and just says, just kidding. No, it's actually, it's actually Gilda. And maybe yeah, it was like even it him. Who knows? The, yeah, it pulls the rug out twice basically just yeah. to just to do it yeah just to do it so and maybe i don't know i'll i might go back and reread it here in a little bit and just see if there's anything 
that kind of lays the groundwork for it, but I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I really don't think so because I will say actually I did know going into this even though I hadn't read before I had I had it spoiled for me like who Holiday was and it was mm-hmm. Alberto, and so I was conscious of that when he was supposedly killed on New Year's Eve. I was thinking, yeah. So they brought him back, huh? When they had yeah. the coroner killed on Independence yeah. Day, I was like, okay, well, maybe that's then how, okay, sure. That's a stronger justification for that happening. If that had been the only thing, even without that Gilda's, you know, personal confession yeah, to yeah. no one. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I, that really bothered me. And now it didn't, it didn't ruin the whole story. Uh, it didn't ruin everything that came before because everything that came before was still really great and highly entertaining and had a lot of great stuff to chew on, but it's definitely a sour note to end the whole thing on. And I don't know if they, again, Nolan talking about like, you have to have your own personal reason. You don't have to share it with anybody. I don't know if there's really anything that Jeff Loeb would have there. Um, Cause if I tried to look up a few things about it, I, the general impression I got from a few Reddit discussions for some folks talking about this ending was that, apparently he said that he doesn't really know himself and if that's the case then that's just it's not it doesn't work it's it really wasn't any point in doing that then if you don't have yeah because yeah, there's a few different interpretations of ways it could go that alberto Falcone's just insane he just confessed because he wanted the credit and that it was just gilda and harvey or not which if that's the case i think that just brings very false thematically for for Harvey that he was secretly this murderer going about while trying to bring justice to Gotham before he finally broke. That just doesn't make sense. That would be a poor, really poor way for things to have shaken out. I think it's you got to believe Gilda when she says she started the things because that's what they tell us. And then yeah. Alberto picked it up. He saw that, hey, this is pretty nice. Maybe I'll do it. But then how did it work out? Just, uh, oh, they didn't coincidentally just she stopped right when he started because she thought it was hard. I just, yeah, I don't, <sighs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It made me think and stuck with me, but not for good reasons. And yeah, yeah, but I can still enjoy the rest of it. That's, that's all right. Indeed. Let's see, are there any other things we had on here? The only other thing I wanted to say about this was I like the good man hunter vibes when they visited the calendar man. <laughs> Yeah, that how was kind of the first few visits were basically useless. They ended up being a yeah. bit productive by the end, but mostly the calendar man is just talking cryptically and not really giving them any help. But it's just a stark white cell separated by the glass. And I thought that tied in really nicely with our next thing. If you're ready to move on, if you don't have any oh, other yeah. notes on the long Halloween, mm-hmm, let's do it. All right, take it away, Jake. Tell us about heat. All right. Uh, Heat is a nearly three hour long movie, 170 minutes movie directed by Michael Mann, uh, released in 1995, starring Robert De Niro, Al Pacino and Val Kilmer. Uh, It was in color shot in 35 millimeter. And the very short, very brief IMDb synopsis uh, says a group of high end professional thieves start to feel the heat from the LAPD when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heist. I'm feeling the heat from that cast list, man. Yeah, man, that this cast, <laughs> not only that, it's also got Dennis Haysbert, William Fickner, Michael T. Williamson, Ashley Judd. Yeah. Uh, 
Danny Trejo's in this movie. Danny uh, Trejo uh, is in this movie. <laughs> uh, and he dies appropriately. Yes. <laughs> uh, Tom Sizemore. Well, a lot of other people. Just a great, great, great cast. Wes well, Studi. Yeah, um, yeah I, got, I got a few people. Natalie Portman. Of yes. Course. Yeah. I've, yeah. Tom little, Noonan little, back here for some more oh, Michael yeah, Mann yeah, yeah. action. Yes. Hank Azaria. Uh, Jeremy Piven has a brief appearance. Jeremy Piven. He's Where? the, um, oh, God, who was he? He was doing something, but the, the shirt, he gave the shirt to Macaulay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And finally, um, they're also young. Zan- yeah, I know. Xander, <laughs> Xander Berkeley caught my eye. He was, uh, is it Ralph? Right. Is the, the name of the person that, Hannah's wife was cheating on. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Ralph. With, yeah, Xander <laughs> yeah. Berkeley, who uh, also, again, to, I'm desperately trying to tie Apollo 13 to, as hard as I can to heat. Uh, Xander <laughs> Berkeley's a kind of creepy press guy in Apollo 13, mm. part of NASA, and he's also a couple years later he was in Air Force One. He's the mole on President Harrison oh, Ford's that's staff. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been a while so, since I've seen that one. It's a big time. Big time of, of in the nineties for Xander Berkeley, so I uh, <laughs> appreciated seeing him here. As the, oh man, getting absolutely dressed down by Pacino, <laughs> and we're here for more Pacino. It's all Pacino. Yes. We got the Dunkachino back. Got the Dunkachino. We got uh, more than caffeine. Pacino. We got cocaine Pacino. Oh my gosh! Yes, uh, <laughs> a lot of great Manhunter vibes from him in this movie too, uh, which we can get on later. Yeah, I can kind of go into a little bit more of the the plot here for um, this just real quick. Yeah. Uh, or no, so, oh, we can go into how we watched, how we've seen it before uh, first if we want to do that. Just follow oh, the notes. Right, yeah, no, good point. Um, okay. Well, this was the first time that I had ever watched Heat. I don't know how, yeah, but yeah, it's just one of those it's... things. So, yep, it was amazing. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it I actually watched this, I think, the night after I had seen everything everywhere all at once. So big, big tonal yeah. switch. Yeah. Since, yeah, big tonal <laughs> switch. And more since it was a more conventional narrative at first, I was like, well, this is good. But was it great? And then with a little more distance, I was like, no, 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 no. This is this is an incredibly crafted. Another wonderful achievement of a film. And it was a really fantastic technical film and it's a great performances and dialogue and I oh mean, like just it lifts out everything and it's great. It excels. And it's your popcorn entertainment, some great character work uh, and great camera work. Uh, it's all kinds of stuff. So, and I watched the Blu-ray. So I check that one out from my local library and it was a great time. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, this was probably the second or third time I've seen this one. This is just, it's one of those movies where if it's like Shawshank or something where if you see it on TV and you just flip through the channels and it's there, it's like, well, this is what I'm watching for the next three hours. Right. Um, (laughs) But I I also watched the, I had the Blu-ray, got it a while ago. And so I was watching that for my copy of it. Yeah, I love this movie. This movie is so, it's like the ultimate dad movie, I guess, maybe (laughs) like, but it's. (laughs) It's that's very true. <laughs> it's Michael Mann, maybe at his peak. I haven't seen all of his the rest of his filmography, but like this is just like it's. It has that feel though, for sure. It's, 
yeah, it's two people who are insanely good at what they do. Uh, and you're seeing the process behind both the bank robbing and the thieving and the policing of the thieves. Great performances, two really good central performances. And then you also see the intricacies of everything else. It's just, it's a great crime saga, crime opus for LA. Love it a lot. Like I could probably just like put it on and at any point and just kind of just like let the score and the blue sound, blue lights and the sounds and everything just wash over oh, me. The score, the score. Yeah. It's so good. Uh, well, before I guess we get to that, <clears throat> hit us just with that quick okay. plot summary, Jake. All right. So uh, the two central performances we have here, we've got, uh, we've got Neil McCauley, who is De Niro, and he is the professional thief based in L.A. And then we have LAPD Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, and that is played by Pacino. And so Neil McCauley, uh, he runs a very tight crew. He runs a very tight ship. He's got four people. Uh, but one of them is a newly hired guy named Wayne Grow. The other three is Chris Shaherlis, uh, Michael Chirito, and Trejo. Danny Trejo uh, does not get a character name. He is just called Trejo. Uh, <laughs> yes, that was, but, I really <laughs> like that. Yeah, I love He's that. I love that bit. Uh, but they hire this new guy, Wayne Grow, and the movie opens on the heist that they're doing. You don't see any of the planning, really. You just kind of see like the very pre-dawn moments of what this heist is going to be. And so they go uh, and they steal uh, a little more than a million in bear bonds from an armored car. Yeah. And they everyone an armored on, car with an 18 wheeler. Yeah. It's we're talking about insane. dark Knight influences. It's right yeah. there in the beginning. Wearing yeah. the masks, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And uh, everyone on the crew is pretty like very disciplined. Macaulay especially is like the epitome of discipline except for Wayne Grove, because he's the wild card. He's the guy that they just hired on. And so during this heist, uh, he just gets a wild hair and kills a guard uh, without any sort of provocation, just goes ahead and kills him. Um, and so in order to counteract that, Macaulay has to then kill a guard who tries to pull out a gun to shoot Wayne Grow. And then Sharito, uh, Tom Sizemore, uh, has to then kill that third guard so they don't leave any witnesses. So what right. could have been a very clean break, very clean operation, just turned into a triple homicide because of one man's stupid decision. And so later, he the clue that the IMDb is talking about is a person. They try to kill, uh, Macaulay tries to kill Wangro after they have the wrap-up dinner after the heist, but Wangro escapes uh, and then is running around L.A., <laughs> And so then that leads us to Vincent Hanna, which is Al Pacino just doing an incredible performance, really. It's peak um, Pacino. It's peak Pacino. The uh, there's a scene where the, the the she's got a great old big old ass, and you're all <laughs> the way up in it. Um, he uh, later uh, revealed yeah. in. <laughs> later revealed in a panel discussion with Christopher Nolan and a bunch of the actors and Michael Mann that his backstory for this character was that he was chipping cocaine and that he was just (laughs) doing that in order to stay awake in order to catch all these criminals. And that was his like one, one vice that he allowed himself in order to do, but they cut, they didn't want to actually show him using the drugs and they cut that part from the thing. So he's like, I don't know if that translated when the movie actually came out, but that was my thought process. (laughs) So once you, (laughs) once you hear that, that makes a whole lot more sense for just how 
loose cannon he is with yeah. everything here. Yeah. Uh, kind of echoes a lot of William Peterson's stuff from Manhunter too, as well was what I was reminded of. But yeah, yeah. Um, so Hannah is uh, trying to catch this crew, and he's been kind of following them for a while and trying to figure out what where they can finally find something that can get them in to catch them for something. Like uh, really and, make it stick instead of yeah, just, and really make it stick instead of just like because they almost catch them, stuff. but they're seeing them about to do a job, but then somebody bumps something in the truck, and then mm-hmm. you know Macaulay calls it off and. And I was like, no, we are, we can get them now, but we'll just be breaking and entering. And what, what would you then? Those be in there for, no, we need to put these guys away. We need to put them away for good. Yeah. But that long Halloween, the, you know, do you want to charge them with something? Do you want to put them out on the street? You know, something like that. But, right. uh, and so the plan for Macaulay is they're going to take the stolen bear bonds and they're going to sell them back to their original owner. Who's a money launderer, Will Fickner. Yeah. And, um, that is going on at the same time as Wangro is just running loose and he starts just serial killing prostitutes. And that's the thing that leads Hannah back to them because they can figure out that he was with this crew when that happened and then everything starts to get connected. And so all of this is happening and um, Macaulay's creed is that he tells him and his crew, he says, allow nothing in your life that you can't walk out on on 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Um, this applies to personal relationships. This applies to friendships, jobs, anything, which is why he is alone. Uh, he has no one in his life uh, yeah. besides his crew. On the other hand, Hannah is on his third marriage uh, and he is working on that third divorce because he's never home. He's always looking for... <laughs> looking for criminals to catch. Uh, and he's really trying hard to connect with Natalie Portman, who's his stepdaughter. And so it, it weaves in their personal lives a lot with their professional lives and shows how you can never really have the type of jobs that these men do and also have a good personal life. It's got to be one or the other. Um, so this all comes to a head where Macaulay realizes the heat's coming and they kind of need to get out while they can. So he agrees to take one last bank robbery. Uh, so they're going to steal $12.2 million. And so before they do this bank robbery though, we have the iconic scene of Pacino and De Niro on screen together for the first time since Godfather, where Hannah tails Macaulay and pulls him over and tells him that he wants to go get coffee with them. And so they sit in a diner and the movie just stops all action for this sequence where they talk about their jobs. They talk about the toll that it takes on their on the their personal lives. They talk about how good they are at their jobs and how that's the only thing that they feel like they identify as and how they have a, a begrudging respect for one another because they can see each right. other in themselves. But it ends with, uh, Hannah being like, I'm not going to hesitate to shoot you if I find you doing something that you're not supposed to. And we are watching you, but if you mess up, we will kill you. And so they they come away from that conversation with a, like they know the score, with the understanding of each other. Right. And the robbery, uh, the bank robbery, which is, if the first one with the armored car was a big influence on Dark Knight, the second one is a huge influence just in terms of oh, sound yeah. design. Um, everything. Yeah, the sound design and the aftermath of the the heights because it all goes sideways, of course, because 
Wayne Grow kind of blows their cover too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He shows Wayne up to Wayne background. Fickner's money launderer and helps them because Wayne Fickner's money launderer character is also trying to get back because he's really steamed that they stole these from him and they're right. taken. So they've not only got Hannah after their crew, but they've got this guy trying to get revenge. And Wayne Grow shows up for this guy to help him with that very thing. So mm-hmm. then, and yeah, then, the bank heist goes all sideways, and that shit yeah. scene, and yeah, the just the gunshots, ah, the, the sound of them, it's so loud. It's so they used yeah. real blanks, like it's insane. It sounds, it sounds so good. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, bank robbery goes sideways. Uh, Shaherless, which is Val Kilmer, is running away trying to reunite with his wife and kid. Trejo gets killed. Everyone is scattered to the wind, uh, and then Macaulay ends up shooting William Fickner. His character name is Van Zant, And then Hannah finally figures out that Macaulay is connected to Wangro and then figures out that Wangro is hiding at a hotel. And so they use Wangro as bait to get Macaulay to come back out into the open. But while all this has happened, Macaulay has been uh, seeing a nice lady that he met at the same diner that he had coffee with, uh, hannah at and so he is preparing to flee the country with her even after very she's, nice lady yes so very sweet. very nice lady she's yeah graphic designer very nice it's a, a all the scenes that they have together really are really nice i like everything about that relationship yeah and even though she realizes his criminal identity she's like you know what sure like i'll go with you you want to get out you're gonna do one last score and we'll leave that's fine i'm with you and so he is getting ready to get involved with one thing that he can't walk out on in 30 seconds flat. Uh, and he is ready to leave the country. He's got a plane waiting for him that he and uh, this girl named Edie can get on the plane and get out of the country. But then he realizes that uh, he gets a tip off from his fence that Wangro is hiding out at this hotel. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to break all the discipline and everything that I know and I'm going to go to this hotel and I'm going to get wordlessly finally he's, he's, he's yeah. just driving down the freeway yeah and you can just yeah. see it on his face as, as he's thinking about everything that mm-hmm. happened with the shootout that uh Tom Sizemore's character got uh shot and killed right and then um yeah Chris uh, Shaherless Val Kilmer's and character he's, he's got injured. shot and then it's hurt and Trejo got killed as well and so he's just mm-hmm. you can see just all of it on his face there's no words yeah. at all and then he takes, he's just coming up and he takes that exit and you're just like, oh man. You're like, oh, he's doing it. Oh no, 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 no. no. And then yeah, there it is. gets to yeah. the hotel, tells her to wait in the car. He gets in there. He goes, shoots Wangro dead, gets out of the hotel, pulls the fire alarm. And in the ensuing chaos and everything, Hannah sees him and they start running around and they do a foot chase on the airport. Yeah. He decides um, he decides to leave Edie, but he, he, yeah, he decides to just walk out on her and leave and flee. And she sees this and realizes it and realizes that he finally did really stick to his code. He's 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 leaving 30 seconds flat once he, he came back Peter to it the too late, though. Yeah. And then so they are playing a little game of Manhunter, stalking each other uh, on the runway. Hannah then ends up shooting and killing Macaulay, uh, but he takes Macaulay's hand as Macaulay dies because they still respect each other and they Again, still totally at their wordless. core. Yeah. They at their just core totally brilliant. know each other. Yeah, it's great. And then that's how it ends. And it's just it's so good. Like that's 
and there's more like other subplot like there's a whole subplot with the temporary getaway driver that they hire and there's a subplot with uh uh hannah's stepdaughter and that whole relationship and how that impacts his ability to do his job and how his job really like screws him and the personal life department for that and it's just it's yeah. it's so good it's uh dude's rock what can i say like <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah i feel like in in terms of our podcast this is maybe the perfect bridge to take us from the prestige to the dark knight yeah just the the obsessions of the characters and them doing what they do we have dual protagonists again which is really great and talking about the panel that we watched as a part of a in 2016 there was an a a panel put on by the academy of motion pictures and yeah christopher nolan moderated it how wonderful for him i'm sure he <laughs> had the time of his life and at one point i think it was michael mann referring to both hannah and macaulay he wasn't calling the one one or the other a protagonist or anything but he was avoiding those terms and just saying the two leads and i was like oh yeah that's how i've been thinking of it too it's hard this is another one of these we get it. these two guys we're seeing them you know again flip sides of the same coin um, Hannah even has a line, you know, I am who I'm chasing. If you want to have even more, you know, mm, yeah. subtext being made explicitly into text. Um, and one thing I was reminded of outside of all this was uh, Justified, which I don't know if you've continued watching it. And I've mentioned Justified on here before, but just the characters of Raylan and Boyd, very much some some Hannah and Macaulay in there. And then once you get to the end of the series, which I won't spoil it for you here, but it's very much plenty, plenty of that throughout the whole thing. And McKelty Williamson, um, yeah, is, is also my, he's well, good. sorry, yeah, he's he's unjustified too. Um, so another reason for you to continue um, with justified. But yeah, these guys, of course, are amazing foils for each other, and I really like kind of uh, get some like of the minimalism and maximalism in not just for some things, but like, especially with their performances, like Pacino's like you get, like I said, cocaine Pacino, but De Niro is just absolutely cool as a cucumber through the whole thing. Yeah. I think the hottest moment he has is when he's about to shoot Wayne grow and then that's it. But otherwise he's just even keel the whole time. Even Uh, when he's robbing the bank, he even puts the, the tellers and the civilians almost at ease where he's like, we don't want your money. We want the government's money. Your money's you're not going to lose a dime. Your money's insured by the federal government. We want bonds. I was just like, okay. It's like, that's a good reminder. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And yeah, they, again, they barely meet. They got that same energy in the dark night where there's like two scenes really that Batman Mm, and the Joker have together. Yeah. The unstoppable force and the immovable object, all that stuff. But ultimately, I think that panel was so good. I could I could listen to Michael Mann talk about anything now. I just he was such an amazing uh source of information to hear him talk about this movie. But he talked yeah. about the characters um being like real people. They're people, they have families. He talked about the appeal of digging into their lives, immersing ourselves in the history of the characters, he said. And he said, but the outcomes of what happens to them. You have characters violating their own codes is what leads to their fates. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah I yeah. picked up on that for sure, because despite Neil repeatedly saying he's ready to walk out on anything at any time, that's what he follows. A lot of his actions, even before his choice to go after Wayne Grow, belied that because 
during the shootout, he could have just left Shaherlis on the street, but he oh yeah, yeah. goes above well, and beyond sure to that, get him out of there. Yeah, but you know it's a uh, he'll do anything for his crew. So, and in the end, too, deviating from that is what gets him. Um, and so, the, like the best, I think my favorite Michael Mann quote from that panel was the way fate works. What happens to each character is a function of a way he thinks life works. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and he said, yeah. if they deviate yeah. from their philosophies, there has to be consequences. And we see that. And it is great. Yeah. And I like how it, talking about the duality stuff, it almost inverts everything here too. Kind of like how, like with Batman and Joker, like the Joker is like in white face paint. Like if he wasn't evil, the color coordination is, is right. different where Batman's a hero and he's all in black, but uh, Hannah is the cop, but he wears exclusively black shirt, black suits. Neil is a thief and he is in white shirt, gray suit most of the time. Um, and right, I really right. liked the, the cut scenes where it's introducing them right after that first, uh, robbery where Hannah is meeting, uh, one of his, his contacts and he like makes the gun with his hand and puts it in his back and says, give me all your money. And then the next scene is is Macaulay talking to one of his contacts and he says, hey, come here and come out and put your hands where I can see them. Like they're each playing cops and robbers themselves, <laughs> except inverted. Right. Um, That's good. And I really liked how they they mixed the um, when you see the like almost it's like a family dinner. Uh, right before yes. the, the end of the bank robbery. It's a very nice, very stately family dinner with uh, Macaulay and Shaherlis and his wife and kid and everyone's wife and kid. And it looks like a group of business people out at a nice dinner. And then it cuts to the to Hannah's night out and he's basically at a club grinding on his wife. Uh, the the actions don't match up with who you think these people are yeah. in society, really. So it's it's always playing with with that and like their philosophies of who they think they are and what people think they are as well. Yeah, yeah, and I guess one other thing I had thinking about, um, like Macaulay and his crew, his family, it made me put me very much in mind of Tenet and what. Chris Nolan said in the Nolan variations when he was talking about Tenet, uh, he was talking about how the love story wasn't really between the protagonist and Elizabeth Debicki's character. It turned into kind of being more about between the protagonist and Neil and mm, uh, Aaron yeah, Johnson's yeah. character. And so he's talking about shooting the, the final scene of the movie for them, all three of them together. Which it's funny that one of the characters is named Neil as well in in the context of this discussion. But yeah, yeah, maybe um, <laughs> that was like a, a worm working its way into his brain. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Um, but Nolan said, if there's a love story in the movie Tenet, it's a love story between those guys. That's the emotional heart, and I didn't expect that. It just took me the way it took me, and I found myself actually emotionally more invested in them. And I think that is what happened in Heat as well, because Macaulay does have that relationship with Edie but it's very clear that his true love really I guess you could say is for his guys and his crew and in a more weird and kind of twisted way Hannah is clearly not like wholly devoted the love story is not between him and his his third wife it is very much between him and what he does and 
he does it because he's so good at what he does. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just, yeah, that you'd think the love story typically would be, yeah, between the the man and the woman, but it's really about these guys who whose true passion lies elsewhere. Yeah, and that's very much like a Michael Mann thing too, right? Is like it's it's all about the the job and how well you can do that job. I think it was uh who was it that says it on his crew? He was like the action is the juice. <laughs> when they're yeah, yeah. On whether or not to do the final bank robbery. That's uh um, yeah, sure sure ready. Tom Sizemore's character. Yeah. Chirito, Ch- yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that that's what it comes down to, I think, for a lot of his movies is it's Manhunter, it's Miami Vice, it's uh, Heat, it's a lot of that stuff. And so, yeah, or even the almost like a weird like love, not love affair, but just I guess the mutual respect relationship between Macaulay and Hannah is much more of a robust relationship than anything that they have with their romantic partners because they can never, they actually understand each other. They under, They know how hard each one has to work to be as good at what they do as they are. Yeah. Um, and they both... Yeah, like I liked your your point about the family. Like they both have little families that they can't enjoy, right? Like Hannah can't really hang out with Justine and his stepdaughter because he's constantly getting pulled away for work. And Neil, as much as he wants to enjoy being with his crew and the people that he's providing for, he you know has to stick to that code and is abiding by it for his entire life like so much so to the point where he has when Shaherless crashes at his place because his wife kicked him out one night he doesn't have a couch to sleep on because he's so (laughs) neil's so minimalist that he doesn't want it and also just he doesn't want to have anything that he can't pack up like there's no dishes there's like hardly anything in this apartment uh so like he has all these people in his life but he can't really enjoy them because of his code the way that he lives Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So just two fantastic, engrossing characters. Just keep, not well, they don't really carry the film. I mean, they're the heart of it. Um, yeah. But I'm so glad that you know we got the performances, the two guys in those roles that we got because it really just takes this film onto another plane of existence. It's great. But what are some other things? I guess talking in context of influencing the Dark Knight, the the scale, the epicness of this movie, yeah, the, the location using the city. The city is really like its own character, and some of the shots, like some of the aerial shots, nighttime, were what really got me. Uh, one of the things that really got me watching Heat because from the very first time I watched the Dark Knight in the theater, one of the most stunning cuts was uh, at the very beginning after the the bank robbery when it cuts to nighttime and mm-hmm. you see that just big wide shot of downtown Gotham at night and it's uh, it's still an IMAX framing so it's extra big and it just and with the music hitting too it's oh everything just hits you at once and you're just really feeling the the whole weight of the city and how things are being set up for the the movie with you and I mean, that <laughs> you get a, yeah. a lot of, if not all of it here from heat. Um, and it's yeah. Like once, you know, you're like, oh, it's so obvious. And it's such a fantastic inspiration and something to, to draw on. And I feel like he might do uh, Nolan. Um, 
whenever I think of a Nolan movie, the color palette that I always think of is like blues and grays and steely colors. Right. Yeah. And that's like, you know, most of Michael Mann's filmography, but it's definitely (laughs) this movie, like the scenes, especially when you're in Neil's apartment. Yeah. uh, The diner scene, um, a lot of stuff like that. Like that's the color palette and the, the vibe that he's operating in. And I feel like that you can't really help, but think that that is something that's always influenced Christopher Nolan, especially in the dark Knight, Cause that's the same type of like color palette that I think of too. Cause when, the first thing when I think of, when I think of the dark Knight, is weirdly, it's that bank robbery scene at the very beginning, just cause that's the first thing that lulls you in. Yeah. Um, even though there's so many other great set pieces from that, that's the f- very first thing that I go to. Um, right, but right. The, that nighttime shot, like you mentioned, and all the the different like steel blues of the city and the city construction and the buildings and the architecture and everything, and the way that he color grades it with the kind of blues and gray tints and everything, definitely, definitely, uh, tip of the hat to Heat for that. I think. Yeah, and Nolan talking about it in the Nolan Variations was talking about how they were going to approach shooting the Dark Knight. A lot of on location real city shooting compared to Batman Begins being a little bit of on location, but mostly a lot of stuff in the in the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, he was talking about heat and in the lead into this, he said that's a true Los Angeles story, just wall to wall within the city. So okay, we'll make it the Dark Knight a city story. We're going to shoot it in a real city with real streets and real buildings because the scale of that can be massive. And again, he was talking about uh, heat a little later and saying that. Uh, Michael Mann understands the grandeur of a city and how it can become a kind of epic playground. And especially like maybe the most <laughs> obvious example of this is that shootout scene. And boy, does it ever become that playground? Yeah. So uh, if you want to take a moment to talk about that, my favorite part, as I think we mentioned, was just, yeah, the sound of it just struck me. It really like as I was watching, I'm like, oh, this is so loud. But like, yeah, I think on the panel that the special feature that we had, they mentioned, like it just sounds different. So I noticed that. And then I, my, my heart jumped for joy when Nolan called that out too. He said the sound of the guns in the shootout. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'd already, I'd already noticed that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the sound is just a huge part of the fabric of the movie. And the shootout is like the textbook example. And it is an exemplary instance of, Nolan's quote about people asking me if I'm ever going to make a musical, but I'm like, all my films are musicals because he (laughs) has that interplay between the music and the sound. And when he was discussing that in the Nolan variations, that was in the context of a scene from the dark Knight. So it's just, we need, yeah, like there's all these things in here and just that, that shootout really, really uh, (laughs) captured my imagination. Honestly, it was, it was amazing. Um, in addition to that, you have, you know, they're going through all these civilians and getting them involved in the story where, you know, you do that in the Dark Knight too with like the people on the ferries and yeah, the bank heist and all this stuff. <laughs> but yeah, the sound really was a, a high point for me, making it into its own kind of percussion. One of the things Tom Schoen said about some of the sound in the Dark Knight. Yeah, it's all that's always the one that the one scene that like Best Buy would always use to show off <laughs> sound systems for TVs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And even watching, I, I finished watching it on my laptop. And even then the sound still rings out and sounds real. So it's just great sound mixing sound effects there too. I also like the geography of that scene too. It's shot in a way where you know where everyone is. You know what everyone's job is supposed to be not only for this robbery, but like where the actors are supposed to be blocked. There's nothing that's left up to your imagination to figure it out either through the, um, and so through the edit and through the sound effects and everything else, it's, it's a very, it's a chaotic scene that starts off very calm and then goes to shit very quickly. Yeah. But you are never left in doubt as to what's actually happening. And with all the characters and there's no, like, there's not a lot of shaky cam. It's all very fluid. And yeah, like you said, like the, the gunshots are kind of scoring it at that point with the percussion of the bullets and the sound of the car screeching and everything, but it's all very easy to follow where it in the hands of someone else, I feel like it wouldn't have been as easy to keep track of. Yeah. Yeah. Just great action. Not only in that scene, but throughout it's, someone in full command of of their powers and michael mann just serves up a treat so wonderful uh maybe a little bit more from the panel i don't want to talk about before we wrap things up possibly soon um but uh (laughs) chris nolan asking for michael mann's advice on incorporating details into (laughs) his films i just thought that was a great one (laughs) i was like this this guy's asking this guy about details i I thought these guys are like michael jordan like they're some of the best to ever do it and they just think they they're still trying to see how they can get better it's yeah so great then amy brenneman who played Edie, talking about (laughs) how she was trying to like our days uh no, talking about like when she was trying to get into the mind of the character, doing all these like trying to oh, think of all yeah, these things, yeah, yeah, all yeah. these psychological possibilities, and how I think she talked to to Michael Mann, and he said like, "No, nah, just take it, pull back, and just let, just do it, just take all that away, and just just play it straight or something." And she talking about how Edie was so unguarded, and that people need connection, and letting go of a certain psychological dissecting. Is how she put it, and then I thought, how how Nolan's heart must have just soared at that line because he's always <laughs> against all the uh, kind of implicitly maybe trying to avoid the Freudian interpretation of everything. So yeah, just trying to like yeah. let let something happen, let it be on its own terms. Yeah. yeah, I liked that, and I also liked how in the ways that Pacino and De Niro answered questions about their acting choices or their characters. It seemed very in character. I think um, Pacino talked a lot more about everything than De Niro did. And then when they finally talked to De Niro at the end of the panel, he was just like, it it was a great experience. I loved making the movie. It was fun. I liked it a lot. And that's that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He was very, very straightforward and and terse. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't have too much to say. Yeah. yeah, and the Pacino's like, I was on, I was talking about doing cocaine, and we were doing all this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he <laughs> <It> was uh, <laughs> much more animated, <laughs> and just the absolute. Um, they had Dante Spinati, the cinematographer, and just the absolute balls, just to like 
Oh, to be like digital has made everything better like digital the remastering of this movie just made it look even better and no one's like well you know there's actually a perfectly good film print of this <laughs> like you know whatever and yeah no one just had to like go in the role of moderator he's like i'm just going to deliberately ignore that and we're going to move on <laughs> yeah. same same dp from uh manhunter too and i and then they even called it out too like yeah good mentions of manhunter about some of the slow frame rate shooting for the finale of Manhunter and a couple of shots. Sure. And, I yeah. liked his story about trying to find light, how he was he was on a helicopter with another lighting rig to make sure that they could light the night scenes correctly. Yeah. So they had not only did they have the, the chopper they were shooting, but they had the one that they were in filming and then they had another one with a lighting rig on it. Yeah. He's <laughs> like yeah. hanging out the side. And then that story of of Michael Mann saying like or, or no, it was uh uh, yeah. the, the cinematographer being like, yeah, one time we were sitting there and Michael was like, turn that damn light off. And I said, yeah, what is that damn light? <laughs> yeah. Michael, that's the sun. Like, can't do that. <laughs> I think that was, that was the last the, the part of the, the last story of the whole thing. And it was, yeah, that oh, was, yeah, that got me, uh, got me rolling around a little bit. I love that. That just, that yeah, doesn't illustrate. Watch- who Michael Mann is to, to me, man, then I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah, the, it makes the perfect most sense. control. Yeah. 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 And the there was a, another note. panel. Uh, there was another panel. I think it was just one guy doing like more of an audience question and answer thing that I didn't get to watch. That's on the Blu-ray that I want to watch now too. Cause him, Michael Mann being unleashed on just regular people's questions. <laughs> uh, sounds amazing to me. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, toronto film festival which i didn't check yeah that that one maybe i should yeah Yeah. and i was gonna say the last note i have here on that panel was they also had one of the editors because let's see they had i think four editors on this movie uh if i'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. um check that right here film yeah film editing um and this guy was talking about something like i think Michael Mann told them, you know, try not to, I think this was the advice from Michael Mann was, you know, try not to edit for action or for, you know, plot or whatever, but try to edit for the emotion. And just when he said that edit for emotion, I thought, you know, that is another thing. Like Nolan's heart must have skipped the beat and be like, oh yeah, yes, this exactly. Um, yeah. Like, I think when you told me about the panel and recommended watching it, you said like, yep catnip just the nolan catnip again yes and that's exactly yeah. what it was so just that that's a concept edit edit for the emotion i was like oh okay yep that's something i'm going to be watching for now too for now on mm-hmm. that's that's a really good one the only other note from the panel i have is actually from nolan's uh, introduction for it where he's talking about how he saw the movie for the very first time which could very well also describe people's uh experiences watching one of his own movies where he he said, yeah, I heard about this movie called Heat, uh, and I liked Michael Mann, but I hadn't really, I didn't know what this movie was. And I read a review that said it was good, and so I was like, oh, I don't know if it, eh, maybe it's Cops and Robbers, eh, okay. And then I went to go see it, and then I went to go see it again the next day, and the next day, and the mm-hmm. next day after that. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously it became such a huge influence on him, because we're talking about The Dark Knight, but with a lot of his other movies. But you could very easily also say that about one of his movies where you just go, eh, it's, it's a Nolan movie. It's going to be a puzzle box thing. But then you go back and you keep 
you know, repeat viewings and finding out more stuff to see with it. I mean, um, that's literally so, what I did with the Dark Knight, but yeah. with the the full hype instead of just hearing about it as a little thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, what what a film, though. Man, I, I, I can't wait to watch it again. I'm going to do it soon. Yeah, same. There's also a uh, there's a book that came out and I, I think it's based off of some like script treatments that Michael Mann wrote for it because the he initially envisioned this as like a huge TV series that then got shrunk down to a TV movie, and then he took that and yeah. did, and did this three hour long epic, and so he's got a huge bunch of backstory for all of these characters, even the side characters that you only see for a couple minutes. Yeah, and so uh, the book Heat Two is both a prologue to see what was going on in all these characters lives before the events of heat and then directly after what happens after that bank robbery and it was actually co-written with a texan author i think she's from houston if i'm correct i don't know um but uh, her name is meg gardner and so I've, i'm very excited to read that now too to kind of just see where the rest of this leads i hope they there's talks that that's going to be made into a movie so i don't know uh mm, obviously with michael mann but i don't know when yeah. that's going to happen but he could be like ridley scott and keep making movies till he's like 80 but <laughs> hopefully we'll see yeah um, but yeah i'm real hyped to read that now just to see where all these characters go like i want to live in that world just a little bit more yeah i wouldn't mind going back either <laughs> we'll see we'll see if we get it yeah all right you want to do letterbox reviews let's do all right i'll let you go first on yours yeah mine uh actually you pretty much surreptitiously already kind of did my review because <laughs> the one <laughs> i saw was from a recent one from the letterbox user called flop master at flop master <laughs> and the their entire review is just hearing al pacino yell big ass was amazing <laughs> so, so good it's yeah. so good it is that it scene is. is so great i love it so much i mean if you didn't believe him saying he was his character was chipping cocaine you definitely believe it when you see it there <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah oh man mine is uh by a user that i haven't really seen anything from before it's uh matt underscore domino and then it says after listening to so many rewatchables podcasts about this movie without having truly internalized it in the same way as those guys i think i'm finally joining the cult this movie is poignant puzzling thrilling technically amazing cheesy frightening over the top subtle and nuanced and somehow feels shorter than its nearly three hour running time Upon watching it this time, I realized that this movie is closer to The Wire than any other movie I can think of, at least at the moment. I'm probably going to end up watching this once a year for the rest of my life now. And that is pretty much everything that I think of when I think of this movie. It's everything under the sun. It's cheesy, but it's also glorious. It's over the top, but it's also really good at dialing down into subtle character moments. And it is a lot like the thing that I thought of this time. I was like, yeah, this is kind of like if you took The Wire and made it into a movie. And then having someone else kind of validate that made my point for me, really, because it touches on every single aspect of what this robbery or whatever uh, this lifestyle would be for this cop and this robber. Right. Well, this serves as yet another emphatic prompt for me to 
get my act together and watch The Wire, as I've been telling myself to do. It's very good. Um, <laughs> don't yeah. don't sleep on season two. A lot of people hate that one. I think it's really good. Yeah, I'll, I'll see. I'll. Yeah. Um, I it don't. A, yeah. It is a time investment, though. Yeah. Yeah. That, things like that don't bother me. I know. Yeah. For example, a lot of people like to hate the fly episode of Breaking Bad, but that is a masterpiece. I don't care what you say. How dare um, they? How dare they? But uh, yeah, <laughs> they're just stuck in the lab. Are you kidding me? Come on, people. The metaphors. The metaphors. It's Ryan Johnson. So, of course, people. <laughs> exactly. Just, people just. Yeah. Anyway, that's not the point here. Um, <laughs> so, to, yeah, well, <laughs> get away from <laughs> that. The, Yet another screeching halt that I've brought us to right before we get to the. <laughs> We're uh, so close. I, I almost late. went the whole it's time fine. without it. We can, we'll fix it in the edit. That's fine. Fix it in edit, post. Like edit, we can edit also, special yeah. effect. Sure. Yeah. The greatest yeah. cut. The greatest special effect is the cut. Yes. Um. That's why I. That's why I really do this to test that theory all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people want more of all this shenanigans, uh, where can they find us, Jake? You can find us uh, at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and at Friends at Dusk on Twitter. Uh, you can give us a shout out via email at Friends at Dusk Pod at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris 4 or on Letterboxd at 808 Jake underscore. And I am on Instagram at Marshall.doig, Twitter at MarshallDoig, and on Letterboxd at MDoig. So please. Give us a like and subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed this episode and hopefully the other ones if you've been keeping up. And please, yes. If you feel so compelled, or even if you don't, just please give leave us a five-star rating on <laughs> Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever else you listen if you are able to do that. Just just do it. Uh, blind approval. Five stars. We want ad money is what we're saying. Please do. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, we, this, is, this is the only reason we do this. <laughs> it's definitely not for the money. No. But if you did want to give us some money, you can support us through our anchor page. So we don't have to steal it. We don't have to turn to the, the life of Neil McCauley. No. Um, and as always, you can find our list of resources for everything we talked about uh, in the show notes. Uh, we and can see whether next. we're going to read The Dark Knight Returns or the, A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. Uh, yeah, later on, that will yeah. that will give you the answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and next time we will be discussing the Dark Knight. So get ready for that. It'll be a good discussion. I certainly hope so. Let's uh, set the expectations and see if we can meet and even surpass them, like the Dark Knight did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, so. yes, I hope so. That will be all for us for now. We will see you next time on Friends at Dusk. And once again, thank you for listening. Bye. Why'd I get mixed up with that bitch? Cause she got a great ass. And you got your head all the way up it. Jesus. <laughs>